Welcome back to The Deal with Danny Brown, where every week I interview top real estate players and distill down what makes them successful, their mindset, their habits, their experiences, their wisdom, all that good stuff. This week's guest out of Philly, Philadelphia, Sky Michaels from Compass. He's the managing director at Compass in Philadelphia, overseas and leads about 400 agents. He also had his own sales team. You could find him at Sky Michaels or at the 6AMers uh, on Instagram. And uh, look, we get into a lot of stuff about leadership and extreme, extreme accountability, extreme ownership, how you, how that applies to teams, etc. So please subscribe, leave us a comment, tell your friends about it. Uh, come back and look at our catalog. We have a ton of good real estate content and interviews. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to The Deal. I'm Danny Brown. Today's guest all the way from Philly, Sky Michaels. Good to see you, Sky. How are you? Good seeing you as well, Danny. Thanks so much for having me on. Hey, great to have you on. Here we are, March Madness in 2022, and you're coming out of Philly. Your boys, Villanova, are playing for the cup. They're, they're in the final four. You got to be excited about that, although what are you, you're, you're a Big East guy, but not Villanova. Yeah, I tend to wear the color orange. I'm a I'm a I'm a Syracuse orange man. Uh, class orange <laughs> We had some great Big East battles. I miss the Big East, but um, at the end of the day, I'm a Philly guy through and through. Those, so you know, obviously now it's uh, UNC, Duke, Nova. I'm going to go Nova every day. So. Yeah, hey, it's a classic Final Four matchup, and also they're playing Kansas. There's been a lot of history recently. The Kansas Villanova rivalry where the winner has gone on to win it all. So who knows? This could be the deciding, fa deciding factor. It's going to be interesting. Well, another really small <laughs> fun fact, the first 15 seed St. Peter's, they won to get into the Elite Eight in Philadelphia. So we were pulling, and, you know, the whole Philadelphia region was pulling for St. Peter's to, to pull off that upset. But Nice, know. nice. So anyway, you're a Philly guy, so there's a lot of people going nuts. Um, another thing I wanted to touch base about is you have a very unique setup and a position at Compass. Um, and we'll get into that, but you you handle sort of, you're the managing director, I mean, you're overseeing a lot of agents and a lot of strategic initiatives, but you were also, your background is also sales as an agent and a top producer. Um, yep. So we're going to get into that, but I want to jump ahead because there's something really special that you've uh, shepherded at, at Compass. It's called the 6AMers Club. Uh, yep. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about that for those that don't know anything about it or maybe not at Compass. Tell us a little bit what is it sure. and how did it start and what is it looking like now? Yeah. Well, so what is it is it's a really hard question to answer because you could probably ask a hundred six AMers what it is and each one is going to tell you a little different. Um, the best way I describe it, it's a community of like-minded people who are all trying to get a little bit better. We use the motto, get 1% better every single day. And really it's a group yeah, it's, it's really, we're geared around how do you wake up and be happier in the course of the day? Um, a motto that I actually love is if you could take a 30 minute vacation every single day, how would that make you feel? And if you imagine, if you could create a morning routine that models the feelings you have when you go on vacation, relaxed, enjoyed, uh, free, right? Danny, if I ask you, what do you feel when you go on vacation? What what comes to your mind? Everything good. Oh, a warm, yeah. fuzzy feeling all over. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And if you could start your day taking a 30-minute vacation, how beautiful would the rest of your day be? Oh, 
epic. I love this. I love this. I right? need a vacation at 6 a.m. So when I hear 6 a.m. or I'm thinking of like college, get out of bed at five and run the run the stadium stairs and then go take BP till your hands bleed. And then, you know, that's but this is different. This is not that six. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. Well, maybe that is like I'm a I'm a college athlete. Like I, I think you might have been as well. But uh, at the end of the day, for me, 6 a.m. does mean working out. But for someone else, maybe it means meditation. For someone else, maybe it does mean uh, reading a book. For some people, maybe it's doing laundry. Like, I'm not sure. There's all types of people that get all different things out of the community. But at the end of the day, the 6 a.m. is just, it really started in the pandemic. Um, and actually, two years ago, almost the day, uh, the pandemic you know, was obviously raging. We were in lockdown. The world was coming to an end. We didn't know what was going to happen, right? If you remember March two years ago. Yeah, yeah. The world was uh, ending. The sky was falling, and we were all lost and scared. For sure. Totally. And think back, Danny, to what you're doing. You're going to virtual happy hours at 4 o'clock, drinking, you know, till who knows what time. You're watching Netflix. You were staying up late. You were maybe homeschooling kids, whatever it was. We weren't normal. And a lot of walks, a lot of bike riding and walks. Yeah, exactly. Right. And at the end of the day, I got out of a routine and I got really frustrated because of the fact like I love I love that feeling of being in a routine, a rhythm, a consistency. And I said, you know what? Like, I can't control what's going on outside these walls. I need to control what goes on inside these walls. And I basically sent an email out to my office. I said, hey, who wants to participate? I had 56 people raise their hand and say, yeah, we're, we're in. We're going to do this for the month of April in 2020. Wow. Amazing. And that's how it began. And to date, uh, two years in, we've had over 4,000 people participate. Um, 4,000? You know, yes. <laughs> yeah, 4,000. And that's only in Compass as well, by the way. Wow. It's only within Compass. Um, I've done 350 Zoom calls. Uh, we had two different groups. We have an East Coast and a West Coast group that all go at 6 a.m. Um, you know, it's truly an incredible group of people. So, so I actually could do it at 3 a.m. If I want to get on the East Coast time, I could do it West Coast 3 a.m. <laughs> no, 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 no. So West Coast, so it's East Coast at 6 a.m. And then on the West Coast, it's at 6 a.m. So it's 9 a.m. my time. Right, but and I then could jump I, on at the 6 a.m. Oh, yeah. New York time and it's 3 a.m. You got it if you wanted to, for sure. <laughs> I don't recommend it, but it's possible. Don't, for sure. don't recommend it. No, no, not not anymore. Those days are long over. So, yeah. Tally, did, does each one of these calls, is it a topic you go over or what actually happens? Yeah. So if it's I'm on question. this call, what happens? Yeah. So the very first call, so basically you, each month you have to sign up to participate and mainly just so I'm not spamming people that aren't interested. So I want people to say, hey, this is the month I want to participate in. And um, basically, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'll post a question of the day in Workplace, right? The, our internal Facebook group. Um, people respond to that. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, I do a Zoom call. Uh, the first Zoom call of the month, we set a one-word intention. So what is your one word that captures your intention for the month? So actually, we'll, we'll play along right here, Danny. Like if I were to ask you for the month of April... If you had to come up with one word to capture your intentions for the month of April, what would it be? Energy. Boom. So you would write the word energy down. And every day you're going to look at that word and it's going to fuel your month of April. After that, every other Zoom call is us interviewing. I interview um, a really dynamic, exciting 
motivational person, either encompass, most of the time they're encompassed, but sometimes they're outside of compass as well. So that's it. Really and that's so it's a daily thing. It's a Monday through yeah. Friday thing. Yeah. Yeah. The mindset right. is like, we can be I'm with you. Have to try this. I'm going to have to get on this. I know. Alexis, yeah, we're- remind me to make sure we got, we got to set, we got to set me up with this. Exactly. <laughs> so, so now that we've gotten that out of the way, why don't we talk a little bit about what's going on in Philly and the Phillies market? Uh, I love to get a snapshot of every market. Uh, you know, what are some of the key high end sales? What's the sort of overall narrative of what's happening? I know most markets are probably, you know, a lot of similarities, but I'd love to get the insiders boots on the ground take on yeah, the Philly yeah. market. And I know that there's city, there's, there's suburban, there's a lot to that market, but Correct. Yeah. walk us through that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, if I were to, it's probably similar to most people listening to this right now. Um, our, our market is experiencing historically low inventory rates. Um, we average about a one and a half month inventory in the city. Outside the city, we are even a little bit lower than that. And it's insane to just see some of the uh, transactions that are taking place as far as the you know, the bidding wars and things that people are, are doing in order to win properties. Um, you know, for our agents at the end of the day, though, we're, we're just preaching consistency. We're preaching relationships and we're also, also preaching creating the inventory, right? Uh, there's a lot of shadow inventory in the sense that you have sellers who want to sell, but they're not sure where to go or whatever the case might be. And what we're trying to coach to is that, that that shadow inventory, there are solutions to the problem. You just got to go out and you got to find the solution. So for example, a seller wants to sell their home, but they're not sure where they want to go. How can we leverage private exclusive to put the property in the market and say, hey, we're only going to let people in who can give us a rent back or a six-month closing date, right? And then they're comfortable moving forward but they're because they're not going all into the market. They're just dipping their toe in and seeing. That's just a small example. So our job as agents... Yeah, we want to create inventory, right? If we create inventory, then this is a great market. If we don't create inventory, it's a, it's a bad market. So a lot of it just goes back to perspective. Like, how do you view this market and how are you going to approach it? That's such great advice because I, I talk to people all the time. And that's the first thing they say, there's no inventory. This market's killing me. And it's like, okay, we can't control that. But what you can do is get creative and do mm-hmm. what, what you're suggesting is go find the inventory and figure out solutions to the challenges and it doesn't mean all of a sudden that you're going to have five great listings on the best street to sell but if you can figure out your way through the maze you may come up with a deal or two or three and that deal or two or three can make a big difference in your quarter or your your year uh and rather than just like oh woes me there's no inventory this market sucks like okay we get that it's been that way for 10 years now yeah i love that you're doing something about it and getting creative what are some of the high-end hot areas in Philly for a family to buy a house? Yeah. So and what um, does that in house, the city, what's the price range of those houses? Sure, sure. Philadelphia is, I call it a very manageable city to live in. Um, you know, if you, if you picture our two closest competitors, uh, you have New York City and you have D.C. Um, you know, the price of a home in, compared to New York City or D.C., it's, it's much more affordable to live in the city of Philadelphia. Um, our higher end market, you know, our high end market is anything over a million. Um, you know, so we're not like anywhere near the New York or DC prices, but at the end of the day, you can get a really solid, you know, um, brownstone or single row home, single family home 
you know, in the, in the upper sevens, eights, nines, in what we I call it the four corners of the city. So Philadelphia was built around squares. You have Rittenhouse Square. William Penn is going back into history. Yeah, I love he, it. Three, Give us some history, three. baby. Come on. <laughs> well, the city of Philadelphia was built around four main squares, and the squares were meant to be neighborhoods or green areas where people met, they'd had markets, they interacted, etc. And if you think back to the 1600s, this is a place where there was fresh air, there was, you know, uh, places where it was still sort of natural. And that's what he created in the city today. Philadelphia is a city of neighborhoods. Every single neighborhood in Philadelphia has a unique flair, a little bit of a cultural vibe that's a little different than the rest. And so when you're looking at buying in the city of Philadelphia, the first thing I always ask is, well, what is it you love to do? And what you love to do is usually where you're going to gravitate to for a neighborhood. So as far as family neighborhoods, we have a neighborhood called Chestnut Hill or Mount Airy. This is a little bit up into the northwest corner of the city, has a little bit more of a suburban feel to it, let's say. But in the city proper, we're seeing a lot of families stay within the city. Once again, this is a little bit of our inventory dilemma. In the past, in history, you know, people would get married, they live in the city, and the minute they have kids, they'd leave, you know, but there's been a lot of work and a lot of effort done at really improving the public school system and also providing other schooling alternatives that more and more families are actually staying and choosing to live in the city. And thus, once again, creating a little bit of this inventory situation that we currently are doing. So if I want to buy a nice row house in a neighborhood with a lot of great restaurants and art galleries and culture, what would be a neighborhood or two that you would recommend? And what would I expect to get? How big would the row house be? What, how much sure. you said it was like six, seven, eight hundred thousand. What would that get me? Just so we can give context to people. For sure. So um, restaurants, art museums, I mean, it's sort of ironic, like the art museum or Fairmount neighborhood would be a really great neighborhood to purchase. Um, if you if you've ever been to Philadelphia, you know, the famous Rocky Stairs, it's Rock. it's basically my favorite movie. <laughs> of course, I remember those stairs. <laughs> right. So the art museum is the neighborhood that that really is right next to the art museum. There's other famous museums that it encompasses. Um, if you're looking to buy a 2,000 square foot row home there, you're probably up in the eights and nines. You could easily cross a million as well. But but once again, you can get a very, very solid, you know, three, four bedroom, two and a half bath, 2,000 square foot home, you know, right in that eight, nine million mark for sure. Got it. So under a million bucks, you're living in a really nice property in a really nice neighborhood. Sure. Yep. All right. Absolutely. Good. That gives us some some flavor. So let's talk a little bit about you specifically. Um, you grew up in the area. So why don't you walk me through where you grew up? Did you grow up in the city or outside the city and what your, what yeah. your parents did and what, kind of what, where you went to school, Orange Men, obviously, but how you got into real estate. And then we'll talk a little bit about sure. what you're doing now. Yeah. Well, ironically, I actually grew up in upstate New York. So oh, okay. yeah, so I grew up in upstate New York, but I was on the crew team in high school. And then when I went to college, I was actually, I rode at Syracuse University um, so I was very familiar with Philadelphia from from rowing, and I was graduated in uh, 2000 with my master's degree from Syracuse, and I was going to be a teacher. So, you know, for my whole life growing up, um, you know, I grew up like lower middle class. Actually, we grew up probably lower class, uh, divorced parents, single mom, raised three of us. 
Um, and I always joke around the one time it's good to be poor is when you go to college, <laughs> you know, I had a lot of financial aid and, um, it was a really good time to be poor in your life. So you and did undergrad and grad school at Syracuse upstate. Yep. And I actually had a graduate assistant position for my master's degree. I was the women's basketball academic advisor. So I was in charge of the women's basketball team, making sure they passed all their classes, went to study table. I traveled with the team as well, which was really cool. So I, and I would you set were a up rower in college. Is that what your sport yeah. was? Your main Whew, That's yep. a torturous sport, man. I had buddies in college that rode, man. They were talking about 6 a.m. They were already home at 6 a.m. They were rowing at 4 a.m., <laughs> passing out, throwing up. I mean, those guys were beast. Yeah. You're beast mode. No wonder. That's mental toughness <laughs> over the top mental toughness. It, wow. It's a mental sport. It's a, yeah. it's a, it is so a you were sport. you were um, planning for a life in education. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a path. I I got a great job. Um, I wanted to live close to New York, but not in New York, you know. So Philadelphia, DC, Boston, those are the three cities. I got a great job at a great school district right outside the city. I lived in the city of Philadelphia, and I started teaching. And one year in, you know, as a teacher, you look around and you're like, wow. I'm still poor. <laughs> Five what grade level? College. What age re- level were you teaching? Oh, I was a high school history teacher. So, yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's fun. I loved it. You know, I was having a blast. But at the end of the day, I still recognized like I needed to get a second job in order to start to pay off my college loans, you know, maybe reality start investing. Reality yeah, set. reality sets in. And as a teacher, you can see every year, you know, I knew exactly what I was going to make the next year, the year after that, the year after that. So I knew I wanted to get a side job and uh, parent teacher night, 2001. I always remember this was October, 2001, had a conversation with Bill Curry, great guy, teacher. He was going to retire that year, 35 years of teaching. And I was telling him, how much I love teaching, but I was struggling because I wasn't sure how I was going to raise a family, buy a house, et cetera. And he's like, well, if I could go back and do it all over again, I'll go and get my real estate license, sell real estate part-time, and then teach full-time. And I never thought of it up until that moment. Next never, day, never I go in. Never. I mean, I was, you know, is going to be a teacher? Maybe I coach you know, crew or I, you know, I don't know. You don't know, right? Um, so I go and I research real estate license and I figure out you can do it in four weekends, 60 hours of coursework all weekend, Friday night, Saturday, all day, Sunday, all day, two weekends in a row, two weeks off, two weekends in a row. And being the crew guy I am, of course, we're not going to do anything easy. Like, oh yeah, I got it it out all day, all night. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I banged out my education. I got my real estate license and I was a realtor and I thought, I was just going to sell, you know, do three to four deals a year and make some extra money on the side. And um, I got into it and I was, I'm I'm a little competitive, I'll be honest, (laughs) quiet competitive. And I was actually pretty good at it. I connected with people easily and I enjoyed helping people and I had this great work ethic. So I didn't mind showing houses at seven, eight, nine o'clock at night. And I did both for about three years until I was at the point where I was basically, I, I don't say this bragging, but I remember the day I made my salary in a month selling real estate and I'm still teaching. Went off. <laughs> I'm like, what am I doing? Well, you know, Danny, you grow up, when you grow up poor, all you're seeking when you grow up poor is stability. That's the, the dream you have when you're poor is just to be stable. And then, you know, so my whole life, 
you grew up just saying, all right, all I want to do is make sure I'm secure, right? Because life was really insecure. And at the end of the day, when, when I got to that point and I recognized like that I could actually do so much more, it was really hard in your mind to justify going to do a, a career or a job that was, <laughs> I had no idea when my next paycheck was going to arrive, right? It was going back to that instability. And I spent five years getting a degree from Syracuse and I got a real estate license in four weekends. So it's like, what am I doing? Like, yeah, that's I'm leaving- kind of a mind fuck, right? <laughs> like, right? You've yeah. committed so much time and money for five years in debt and thousands of hours. And then here you just did a couple courses all weekend. and <laughs> Yeah. And you're like, I can't, I'm debating leaving the security of this job that I've worked my whole life for to go sell houses. But you were like, scared, wait. frightened. Like, yeah. this, oh this, my might, God. this is the wrong move. I don't want to screw things up. Well, there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, because so much of the show is about people's habits and mindset and discipline, hearing that you did crew, that that was your sport at a college level at Syracuse in the Big East, knowing what kind of mental toughness, grind, beast mode mentality that takes, that's your background. And then, so no wonder you go to it in two weekends, the real estate, no normal person's doing it in two weekends like that. But not only that, then you're a teacher full time, which is just crazy stressful in its own right, high school kids, and you're building a real estate business at the same time. You said you did it for yeah. three years. So I don't know how three many years. people get work ethic and what it really means, but you're a full time teacher with homework and projects and kids and parents and PT, blah, blah. And you're starting a real estate business at the same time <laughs> and, and succeeding at it. So that's yep. what work ethic and mindset looks like. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> so so tell me, so at three or four years in, you then made the switch and said, okay, I'm completely radically changing my life and I'm going all in on real estate? Yeah, yeah. Three years into selling, uh, 2005 was my, June of 2005 was my last day of being a high school teacher and I was a full-time real estate agent and I really never looked back then. And yeah, I was an individual agent at the time and I very quickly hired my first admin in 2006. Um, and then, so you took the yeah, I, hiring I did someone and having the overhead. I knew, uh, I just knew I was running so hard and you know, the real estate market is, it, it was a different, it was as frenetic as it is now, but in a different way back then, you know, we had hundred percent loans, like there's so much inventory and so many transactions. Um, we were just running full time. So, and uh, at my age, I was also a lot of first time home buyers. You know, so I was really running around showing houses. So I knew I needed sell help and support um, really early on. And then uh, hired my second admin prior around 2009, 10. And I was, I don't want to say I was a, I guess I can say this. I was a little bit of a control freak in the sense that I had a really clear idea of how I wanted the business to run. And the idea of having another person take my clients was like, I couldn't even imagine getting a client off to someone. I couldn't. Very common, right? For most of us. Very common. So common. So So, freaked out. Exactly. I went the route early on of adding leverage in the admin side versus the team side. Um, 
And then 2011, I was the number one individual agent in my company. And at the time, it was a you know, Colder Banker. It was a Colder Banker preferred. So it was the franchise locally. This is um, in Philadelphia. And this is uh, in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we had nine offices. There was probably about probably a thousand agents or so. And um, this is a really great lesson for everyone listening about ego. And I, I want to say I had a low ego, but I didn't. I had a big ego. And I won number one agent. I got this like Eagle award at our award ceremony. And it was really cool. So in 2012, I'm like, all right, I really should start a team because I am so stressed out. But my ego was raging. And my ego said, if I started a team, I can't win number one because I'm now competing with these already established teams. And I want to win that stupid You're award. You're worried about being number one. The optics of being number one. Isn't that crazy? And and so very short, I stay an individual for the entire year 2012, almost kill myself. Um, and I yeah, did I win the award? Of course I did. And you know where that eagle sits right now? In the basement collecting. In a box and somewhere. <laughs> I see it anytime I move, I see it. I'm like, oh yeah, that's my ego. And ego is the enemy. Yeah. Anytime you feel your ego leading, you're you're going down danger. Which, by the way, is very common, especially in our business. There's so many traps, ego traps, and with social media and TV, agent culture, it promotes this ego first thing and yeah. narcissist first thing. It, it is a trap and can get you yeah. in trouble and worried about yeah. rankings. And I always tell people, like, just ignore the Doesn't rankings. Like, it, most of these rankings are so inaccurate anyway, you know, than the people that are pushing their sales a lot of times it's like they're not even doing 50 percent of what you think they're doing like who cares yeah the other thing too danny worry about yourself is is what i always say (laughs) and the other thing too is we measure awards on metrics that do not matter meaning we measure awards on units and volume if we could award on tax returns that's the only category, in my opinion, we should create awards around is, is show me your tax return. Right. And if we, <laughs> then we could create an it award, be a right? Very, it will be a very different list. But by the way, I don't, I don't think a lot of people, you know, I, I don't, people don't want to get people that would show that would be high up there. Don't want to show their tax returns. It's everyone no, else. It's I don't an ego thing. doesn't matter. Exactly. Anyway. So exactly. talk to me. Sounds like at some point you had the challenge of, okay, I'm, I, I'm a solo agent and I'm over capacity and my lifestyle is breaking down because I don't have time to do everything. What would what, bring me back to that moment? What were those challenges like? And, and yeah. what, what did you do? Did you end up hiring a buyer's agent? Did you end up hiring a yep. listing agent? Yeah. So I, I was lucky enough to have two admin at the time. And this is going back into 2012. Yep. And, um, and then I sent, I knew I needed to start a team. So I sent an email out to my sphere. And Carrie Waterman, I still, you know, Carrie's still one of my good friends. She was my very first agent that joined the team. Um, she emailed me back and she says, Hey, I'm, I'm getting my real estate license. I want to join your team. And from there, I added about three other people pretty quickly, one of which was my sister as well, Eliza. And uh, we started running the team. Um, in 2013, it was Sky Michaels and Associates. And then I added the tagline real estate with heart. And real estate with heart stood for the word heart stands for caring, love, kindness, hard work, right? Yeah. Like drive, et cetera. Like that person has a lot of heart. You got a heart. So, you know, if you're doing crew, yeah. you have heart. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's for a lot of things, but it was really, uh, I was really fortunate to create that tagline because as I added more agents and as their business began to grow, the tagline very quickly became the name of the team. And once again, it's one of those things of the ego lesson comes into play. Sometimes your ego wants it all to be under your name and all about you, et cetera. And I understood at that point, I was trying to understand how ego plays into success. And ego should drive you, but it can't affect the way you treat other people. So uh, I very quickly, 2000, probably 15 or 16, we switched the team name out of Sky Michaels and Associates and it became Real Estate with Heart. And that was how we ran it. So, yeah. So talk me a little bit about team members and how you utilize them, especially in the beginning. Were, were you bringing them on to deals because you had so many buyers or listings that you needed help with that? Or were they bringing in deals and you were helping them close? Is it a little bit of both? That's always something yep. that comes up when people are building teams. Like, what exactly do you have those team members do? Yeah. So, hey, the first thing you need to figure out is why you're bringing them on. So, for me, my why was I wanted to be, bring people on who could handle some of the excess business that I couldn't get to. And then, B, I wanted to also be the teacher I was. Right. I wanted to be able to create a business that was scalable, that was great for the people on the team and great for me as well. So for, I made the decision very early on that all the agents who joined the team would be agents. Primarily, they could buy and sell. And one of the reasons being is that I didn't really want people to come in and out of my team. And the problem you have when you hire someone and there's just so you, everyone knows that's listening to this. There is no, there is no such thing as right or wrong when we when it comes to teams. It's your fingerprint. So whatever is good for you is your fingerprint. So this would be my fingerprint for sure. You got it. exactly, and and I really want to reinforce that. So anyone listening is like, oh my god, I'm doing it wrong. No, you're not doing it your way. And yeah, maybe you can learn and tweak, but at the end of the day, you're doing it right as long as you are aware of your why and your purpose. So my purpose was to create a very stable team. I didn't want people coming and going. And the challenge you have when you have people who are just buyer's agents is that eventually they grow. And then you're faced with a decision. Yeah. Well, do I put them as a listing agent? Do I let them do buyers and sellers? Do, and then, then you make a little tweak to your standard. And you say, okay, well, you can just do a couple listings. But then your other buyer's agents are like, wait, why can they do listings? So I made the decision really early on that my standard for the agent was that they were going to be a full-time professional realtor who could buy and sell and do both ends of the transaction. And the reason behind that was I wanted to create stability. I didn't want the in and out, you know, people coming and going, et cetera. So that was the whole rationale I had behind that. Um, and honestly, it worked really, really great. And it's it's uh, it's one of the things one of the things in business I'm the most proud of uh, is creating a team that where everyone was a contributor. We had a, just amazing team culture, and it was uh, I you know people built just incredible businesses that they still run to this day. And are you still running or involved with this team, or have you now evolved into? other things like managing partners. So let, why don't we talk about what, what is your business looking like today? Because yeah. I know you have a unique role where it's not just you and yeah. your sales team. That's right. And 
The word I want everyone that's listening to think about is I want everyone to think about legacy. And your legacy is your database. My CRM is my legacy. And at the end, so in 2018, um, I was uh, running a 12-person team, four full-time admins, so 16 people in total. Uh, we were at uh, a Keller, Keller Williams. I was an original founding partner of a Keller Williams Market Center. It was really fun, great partners, really good friends to this day. And you know, I just was sort of looking for something different. Um, and at the end, and Compass came into Philadelphia. A good friend of mine became the founding agent. And I'm making this a very short story, yeah. it's a lot longer. <laughs> um, I took over as the managing director in Philadelphia and my team came over with my sister running the team. So um, in that process, one of the beautiful things we discovered about running a business at Compass is profitability. You know, And once again, I was really preoccupied with volume, units, et cetera. And the idea that you really got to be preoccupied with profit. Right? How much does it cost to run my business? How much inefficiencies are created by not having technology, by not having great marketing, by not having great systems, et cetera? So when I came over, one of my the best lessons from bringing the team over and taking over as managing director is that my legacy, as long as you have a database that you maintain, that you market to, that you nurture, similar to your health, right? As long as you have a body that you take care of, you feed good food, you exercise it, your body will go for a very long time. My database is still intact and my legacy all lies in that database. So today, where we are, you know, the team is at Compass and then I currently have a legacy and I market to my database. And then if I generate, I generate lots, I don't do any sales but I generate a lot of business off a of referral business through my legacy, which is my database. I've never heard of it articulated that way. And I love it that your CRM is yeah. your, is your legacy, is your data. It is your business. And I love looking at it as your legacy because it's something that can come after you. So right. let's, let's unpack this a little bit. So your sister is running what used to be your, the sales team that you built. How many people are involved with that? How many agents, how many admin on that team? Yep. So from 2018 to uh, 2021, the end of 2021, we had, uh, let's see, we were 12, 12 agents for admin. We, we slimmed it up because of lots of reasons, but all good reasons. Um, we went down to seven agents and two admin. And once again, this is the, the impact of the Compass platform. Um, we did uh, in with 12 agents for full-time admin, we did 92 million with seven agents and including in getting rid of me as a, as a source of business and two full-time admin, we did 86 million in business, which is a un efficient team. unbelievable, so much more profitable. And, uh, and then full disclosure, my sister basically took over the team and it really ran like a democracy in some way. Like each agent on there was a, just an incredible agent. And to this day, great, great friend and, and all amazing business people. And at the end of the year, end of 2021, after three years of doing it, it was at a point where she just didn't feel, and even the team, they, they were all at a point where they sort of wanted to go their separate ways, all within Compass. Yeah. And basically the team sort of uh, dissolved. Each agent 
once again, when you think of that word legacy, every single agent on the team had their legacy they because all, that they, they built. you got it. Their yeah. database. Every single person, if you were on the real estate with our team, you worked your sphere. And so you had a legacy. So, you know, at the end of the day, every single person could go in a different direction and you still have your legacy. And that's why I preach CRM all day, every day. And it's so, so critical. I was a really proud leadership for my sister because of the fact that she she had a situation where she tried at, she didn't feel good about, and she made a, a, a leadership decision to change it. And it was a really proud of her. And I'm really proud of all the team members um, and the way it, we're still friends and they're still all friends. And it just was, someone went to some other teams, someone independent and beautiful situation, to be honest with you. So, right, so all the team is sort of gone different ways, independent, started their own businesses at Compass. You've now pivoted, focusing slowly on managing Compass. How many agents are you overseeing and what are your yep. challenges in that role? Yeah. With so many people so, and so many opinions and uh, <laughs> emotions and, you know, needs. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so the first thing is, uh, so I managed 300 at the peak. I managed about 450 agents. Um, I just recently was managing 325. And then just recently, uh, about a week or so ago, I was named the uh, head of agent development here at Compass. So now my job is even go. more in a national role where I'm actually in charge of creating curriculum, et cetera. And to answer your question, the, the piece of it that we do not teach anywhere, not just Compass, but anywhere is leadership. And I, I studied leadership all the time and I would read books. I would listen to podcasts. I would consume, I would talk to people and at the end of the day, I, I don't consider myself a great leader. I consider myself a leader who's constantly trying to learn. And I just recently did a two-day leadership course down in Dallas. Um, I truly believe that anyone on this call that is running a team or in charge of people, if you're not studying leadership, you're, you're missing out. And ask yourself the question, when was the last time I learned about leadership, right? We learn about how do you pay an agent? What's the split? How do you do CRM? How do you market? But at the end of the day, this is a great line from that training. Leadership solves all problems. <laughs> crazy, isn't it? So why, don't you, why don't you enlighten us with a few tidbits of leadership, things that you feel are important and good leaders yep. or leadership as it relates especially to real estate agents? Yeah. What would be yeah. something that we could pull some, some value I'll, out of. So I'll give you three. The first one is, a, and it's, once again, this is all from a guy named Jocko Wilnick, who I, oh, I follow. Jocko is amazing. So Talk I just did two. mode, yeah. Yeah. Um, the first thing is extreme ownership. You have to own everything in your world. <clears throat> that doesn't mean you need to be, um, to beat yourself up when things go, don't go wrong, but I am responsible for everything that happens within my organization, no matter what. And if every single person at every single level adopts that idea of extreme ownership, that's when you create great organizations. So that's number one, you have to own everything. And it's not to say that you have to like, exactly. I don't need to get in front of everyone and say, oh my God, I'm a horrible person. This, that deal went wrong because it's my fault. But what you have to say is, hey, 
Where was my ownership in what went wrong? What can I do differently? How could I have explained that better? How could I have trained you better? And if everyone up and down the chain of command, so to speak, practices that, well, then everyone owns every problem. So that's number one. That was, it's one of my favorite concepts. So powerful. The second one blew me away. And I never thought about it until I heard him say it in person. Accountability is a crutch for bad leadership. Right? Yeah. And if, if you're listening to this, Danny's face. I'm to let that what? sink in. <laughs> right? So, and I, was, I had the same exact reaction because I was like, wait a minute. Isn't my job as a leader to hold people accountable? And he, the way he explained it, if, if I'm running a really good organization and people are practicing extreme ownership, at the end of the day, my job as a leader is to be able to provide a vision and explanation and a direction where they hold themselves accountable. If I have to hold them accountable, I am not doing my job as a leader. And it was like this mindset shift of like, okay, well, that, that is brilliant. I love hearing that. So extreme ownership and you're not wanting to be the person micromanaging accountability. You want to be able to teach individuals in the organization to take on their own accountability. I, I love it. And everyone's looking up and down and everyone's, you know, the ultimate team player. You know, that's you that it. mindset of being an ultimate team player. What can I do to make everyone around me better? That Magic Johnson captain yep. on the floor mentality, but you applying it, it to, to business and a business team and real set. Love it. That that's Love. so succinct. So, I gotta I gotta write that down. And Jocko <laughs> has so many uh, oh, nuggets. You know, he's a yeah. he's a Navy SEAL, right? He's a yep, elite yep, Navy SEAL. Navy I SEAL. mean, yep. the epitome of an elite Navy SEAL. Like at the highest right, elite right. level and. Maybe he'll run for president one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's funny because you think of the other concept that I love, and I could go on and on about it, but the, the silent leader is the best leader. And it was a concept of, you know, I think sometimes we think of Navy SEAL, we think of like these guys like yelling in the sand and, yeah. you know, and as he's explaining like, you know, like sort of the laws of combat and everything along those lines, he said, you know, at the end of the day, it's the leader that doesn't need to say anything and things happen that are the best leaders. If I'm a leader and I need, and I'm yelling and screaming and in order to get stuff done, that's, that's bad leadership. So it, it was like, it, thank you for that. Really that is phenomenal. Yeah. Well, anything else you'd like to share and any advice to real estate agents or leaders uh, before we sign off the floor is yours. If you feel like you got yeah. nothing left, that's good too. You know, <laughs> no. I always have something to say. I'm sure, uh, you know, 6 a.m. Um, crew, man. I mean, you'll just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll relate the extreme ownership into your business. Yeah. So for every agent on this call that's listening to this, if you find yourself complaining or if you find yourself in a negative space, you've got to take extreme ownership over your world. And you have to look in the mirror and you can't say this market sucks you can't say there's no inventory. You can't say fill in the blank. And at the end of the day, you have to look yourself in the mirror and say, I own this. I will get through this. I am going to go and create inventory. And the excuses we tell ourselves are just lies. So if you're telling yourself an excuse, a lie, whatever it is, fill in the blank, you're just lying to yourself and you got to get over it. And you got to take extreme ownership over your future because 
The reality of this world is that there are going to be fewer agents after this market ends because it is a hard market. And you know what great leaders and great people do? They like hard things. I love doing something that's hard. Now, let's go. You are awesome. I'm ready to jump through the screen and hit somebody. You're firing me up so bad. I love it. I mean, that that is a sign of leadership and truth, and it really resonates with me, and I imagine it's going to resonate with a lot of people. It's like, yeah, you've got to like the challenge and the fight. That's what it's about, and don't point fingers and make excuses. Extreme ownership and extreme accountability. I love it. I love it, man. Awesome, well, man. thank you for spending some time with us. I get to yeah. Philly. I'm going to connect with you. Otherwise, I'll see you at the next retreat. Or if you're ever in Cali, we'll connect. I'll put you yeah. on a surfboard and have, show you a good time. <laughs> That'd be great, man. I'm looking forward to it. And I really appreciate what you're doing, Danny, as well. It's, it's, it's leadership as well. Um, you're putting yourself out there. It's hard to produce content like this all the time. And uh, I really encourage anyone that's listening to this to reach out to Danny and make sure you thank him as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Subscribe. Leave a comment. We have tons of great interviews like this, but I appreciate it. You crushed it. Look forward to seeing you soon, man. Thank you. Thank great you. Great job.